Thank you for listening to this message from the pulpit of New Grace Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. We hope the message you are about to hear is a blessing to you and your family. Uh, Psalms chapter 57. Psalm chapter 57. And hold your spot there and go to 1 Samuel 24. So we're going to be in both of these chapters this morning. We're going to start in 1 Samuel 24, and we're going to end up in Psalm chapter 57. <clears throat> there were uh, two friends, two, two, two guys, they were best friends that grew up together, uh, and they, they loved baseball. Uh, they loved playing baseball, they loved watching baseball, talking about baseball, and you know, you ever seen, met some of those guys that, you know, they dissect every little stat in baseball, and they've got some crazy stats in baseball, like, oh, well, this pitcher, when he's pitching on Tuesdays after 3 p.m. against right-handed guys who, you know, happen to have a mustache, he does really well, but if they're right-handed with just a goatee, he does terrible. I mean, they have stats for everything in baseball, and these two guys, they loved baseball, they loved watching it, they loved playing it, they loved dissecting it, but they always wondered, is there baseball in heaven? So they made an agreement. They said, whichever one of us dies first, once we get to heaven, we'll come back. You know, we'll come as a ghost and a spirit or whatever, and we'll, we'll tell the other one whether there's baseball there or not. So, sure enough, as years went by, one of the friends died. The very next day after his funeral, he appeared to the living friend in a dream and said, hey, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The guy said, what's the good news? He goes, the good news is there's baseball in heaven, and it's incredible. I said, man, that's awesome. What's the bad news? The bad news is you're pitching tomorrow. <laughs> David's life is a life of good news and bad news. In 1 Samuel 16, he is anointed by Samuel as the rightful next king over Israel. This is a great day. He comes in, and he's forgotten in front of his dad and all of his brothers, those who have forgotten about him, Samuel lays his hand on him, anoints him with oil, and he is anointed. He is the next rightful king over Israel. That is good news. Immediately, he sent back to the pasture and seemingly forgotten about. That's bad news. Years go by, and he finds himself in front of Goliath. He has an incredible victory uh, over Goliath, and because of this, he, he becomes a national hero. He gets a job. He marries the king's daughter. Everything is going great. This is good news for him. But then Saul kind of turns into a murderous psychopath who tries to spear him to the wall five times. That's obviously bad news. David escapes and flees for his life, and Saul gives David's wife, you know, his daughter, gives his wife to a, another man. He trashes David's reputation. He puts a huge bounty on David's head. That's all bad news. Just as David overcomes one challenge, it seems like another one comes right, right on top of it that is, is even worse than the first one. So what do you do when the path that you believe God has placed you on takes a turn for the worse? When you know you are doing the job or the career God has for you, but suddenly you get fired. 
your job gets downsized and you lose everything? What do you do when the, the spouse that you know God has for you, the, the marriage that you know God wants you to have isn't working out as you expected it to? When you lose a, a spouse, when you lose a child, when terrible things happen that you just cannot explain and cannot understand, what do you do when life takes a negative turn that you're not expecting? See, David's stories throughout the book of First and Second Samuel, they, they warn us against the temptation of what all of us tend to want to do when we face moments like that. We, when problems come and when, when difficulties come and when unexpected things happen, we didn't want to take matters into our own hands. To say it spiritually, in a spiritual way, we want to... We attempt to perfect through our flesh what God has promised to do through the Spirit. We want to be the Spirit of God. We want to be the movement of God. We want to be the power of God. And that's a theme that we see throughout the Bible. You know, almost every character in Scripture faces a moment like this. Where everything is going exactly opposite of what they expected to make. Am I going to do what God has called me to do, what God wants me to do, or am I going to take matters in my own hands? In 1 Samuel chapter 24, David is hiding from Saul. They're what is known as his mighty men, and he is hiding from Saul in the wilderness, and Saul gets some info about where David is and gets some idea about his location and some spies have kind of ratted David out. And so Saul has his army and he is chasing David through the wilderness to find these caves that he knows David's hiding in. So let's start reading in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse number 2. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. Then he came to the sheep coats by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Now, you're probably thinking what I thought when I first read this. What is Saul going in to kind of kick off his shoes and relax a little bit, have to do anything? The, the phrase, uncover his feet, is a, a, a King James way of very politely saying Saul went into the cave to use the bathroom. He's not doing number one. He's going number two. And so Saul needs to find a privacy of quiet. I don't know why this one keeps going out on me. Majesty. There you go. All right. Paying attention. So Saul, you know, he needs to he needs to do his business. And, you know, this is ancient Israel. There's no Walmart to go through, although probably a cave in ancient Israel is a lot cleaner than a Walmart bathroom. Uh, but there's nowhere to go. So he goes into this cave to relieve himself. He thinks he is very private. He thinks it's very secure. But he's not. David... And all of David's men are hiding in that cave. This is a very awkward situation. But think about how David's men feel. They're in a very closed off, 
very stuffy, not a lot of ventilation cave. And Saul's doing this right around the corner. So it's a very awkward situation. Uh, now, David's army, they're hiding in that cave. He doesn't know it. So Saul is very vulnerable and very alone. Look at verse number four. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it seemed good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off a skirt of Saul's robe privily. So David's men, they, they see this and they say, David, this is a chance to, to do what, you know, God's anointed you king. Saul standing in the way. This is, the, this is the way for you to get what God has coming to you, to finally be rid of this evil, psychotic, murderous king and take the rightful place on the throne and rule Israel like, they, like God told you he would. And so the Bible says David arose. Now, when you look in the Hebrew, the word arose means that David made a decision. David, when he got up, did not get up to cut off a piece of Saul's clothing. He got up to kill him. He decided, you know what? They're right. God promised me he delivered my enemy. There's my enemy. He has no idea that I'm here. I could easily take care of this. I mean, he's very vulnerable. He has no idea what's going on. I could kill him. I could be done with him. I could take the spot that God wants for me. But as he's going on, on the way up there, he realizes that doing this is not following God's will. It's murder. So instead of killing him, he cuts off a, a piece of his clothing. Uh, and it's, it's a valuable lesson for all of us. Look, a lot of times we look at life and circumstances and we get, you know, a fortuitous coincidence. And we're like, man, it just coincidentally this happened where everything's working out in my favor this must be what God wants me to do this was be, be, be where God wants me to be but you know you can't justify your behavior your sin because of some coincidence that makes you think that's what God wants you to do you know I've heard people say literally heard people say you know my wife's not treating me right She's not, you know, she's, she's, she's mean to me or she's not doing what, you know, she's, she's not treating me the way I need to be treated. But this girl at work, man, she, she really respects me. We get along so well. We just, you know, when we talk, we click. And me and my wife, we're just fine. So, obviously, God sent this woman into my life to help me. No. You know, because here's the thing. God's not the only one that can make coincidences happen on earth. The devil can, too. You know, I'm not saying that God never uses coincidences, but sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence. You know, one thing you can always count on to guide you is God's word. And that's what David did. David didn't say, man, this is a fortunate coincidence that Saul is right here, doesn't know I'm here, I could kill him easily. Isn't that a fortunate coincidence? He says, well, what does God's word say? The temptation that David the temptation of David it follows a pattern that most people face in temptation. You know, Satan was tempting him 
to take matters in his own hands. He even uses scripture to do it. David's men quote scripture to him and say, hey, God said he's going to deliver your enemy into your hand. How much clearer can it get? There's Saul. He's unguarded. He's unprotected. He's unaware. God is doing what God has promised you he would do. But that's how Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He took him up on a high mountain and said, hey, you know, God said he's going to give you this all one day anyway. If you just worship me, I can do it now. You don't got to go through the pain of the cross. God wants to give this to you. So just take a shortcut and get what God wants for you. That's how he tempted Eve in the garden. So, you know, God wants you to have happiness. God wants you to have wisdom. That's all true. But he said, instead of waiting around for it, why don't you just eat this fruit and you will be just like God. Remember to Abraham? Comes to Abraham and says, man, you know, God promised you kids. Years ago, God said you're going to be a mighty nation and your kids are going to outnumber the, the stars of the sky and the, the sand of the sea. But Abraham, you're pretty old. Sarah's pretty old. But, you know, Hagar's not. You could take a shortcut and do that to fulfill God's word. See, God, Satan often tempts us to pursue the promises of God through the power of the flesh. He tempts us to step outside of God's plan to get the promises God has given us, but to get them when we think we deserve them, when we want them. So David, he crawls up behind Saul. He cuts off a corner of his robe. And then look at verse number five. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. He, he feels conviction for even doing that. I mean, he could have slit his throat. That's what he was planning to do. Because, no, that's not what God wants. I'll just, I'll just cut off a piece of his, his robe. Saul doesn't notice. Probably never would have noticed. But he feels guilty for doing that. And then look at verse number 6. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. Here's what David's saying. Even if Saul is in the wrong, which he is, even if Saul was sinning, which he was, he was still God's appointed king for Israel at that time. You cannot achieve God's purpose for your life by breaking God's commands. Now, look, killing Saul would have fixed a lot of David's problems. He could even argue it's self-defense. I mean, Saul's already tried to kill him five times. He's got 3,000 soldiers hunting him to kill him. So he could very easily kill him and say, look, it was self-defense. Saul was trying to kill me. Look, the thing, Saul had already done a lot of things that warranted him receiving the death penalty according to Jewish law. God had promised that David would be, the, be on the throne. And all of that is true. But David said, I can't justify my sin just because of what he's done to me. I can't use his sin to justify my sin. Look at verse number 7. So David stayed his servants with these words. And suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went his way. David also arose afterward and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David 
stopped with his, uh, stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how the Lord hath delivered thee into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me to kill thee. But mine eyes spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth my hand against my, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yea, see with the skirt of thy robe in my hand. For if I had cut off the skirt of thy robe and killed thee not, know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand, and I have not sinned against thee, yet thou huntest my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. And saith the proverb of the ancients, Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but my hand shall not be upon thee. So Saul, he finishes up, he leaves. A few minutes later, David comes out of hiding. And he cries out to Saul, and he says, Saul, look, I don't know who's telling you I'm trying to hurt you. I don't know who's telling you I'm out to, to overthrow you or to take your throne. I have no evil towards you. Look, people are telling you I'm trying to kill you, but I could have killed you in that cave. I was right there, Saul. I've got your skirt to prove it. But I'm not going to disobey God just because of your sin. Instead of hurting Saul, he showed Saul mercy, something that Saul had never done. Saul's sin justified David sinning. Then he says, wickedness only comes from being wicked. When you act wickedly, it makes you wicked, no matter what someone else did to provoke it. Someone cuts you off in traffic and you wickedly get angry, curse at them. Now they can't hear you, they're in a car, but you're still doing it anyway. So how do you know? I'd done it. Somebody cuts you off, you're like, oh, you blankety blank blank. You, you want to tell them they're number one? You honk the horn at them, you get mad and tailgate them because they did it, so I get to do No, God says, no, you're, you, their wickedness doesn't give you the right to act wickedly. Well, my wife cheated on me, so I get to cheat on her. No, you don't. Well, my kids are mean to me, so I get to be mean to them. No, you don't. Other people's sins don't justify us sinning. Then look at number 14, verse 14. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? And David's calling himself that. He goes, look, you know, I, I, a dead dog can't bite you. A flea can make you itch, but that's it. It can't really hurt you. And look at verse number 16. And it came to pass, when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, is this the voice of my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and, his, and wept. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. Then skip down to verse number 20. And now, behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore unto Saul, and Saul went home. But David and his men got them up into the hold. So David, he, he you know, begs, says, Saul, I have no desire to hurt you, no desire to... And so Saul, he's, he seems repentant. He cries, he apologizes, he says, I know... I know God's got you to be the next king. I know that's what's going to happen. I'm okay with that. And so it looked like 
Saul was sorry. I mean, he said he's sorry. He's asking for forgiveness. He acknowledged David's going to be king one day. He's weeping. But David did not go back with Saul. He stayed out in the wilderness. David forgave him, but he still stayed away. Now, this isn't the, the main point, but this is a good truth. Just because someone says they're sorry, just because someone acts like they're sorry, and just because you forgive them doesn't mean everything has to go back to normal. If someone hurts you and they ask forgiveness, yes, give them forgiveness, but that doesn't give you them the right to say, well, I'm just going to go ahead and everything's back to normal. David said, you know what, Saul, I forgive you. God forgives you, but I'm going to stay back here just to make sure you're really sorry. Because last time I said you were sorry, you tried to kill me the next day. So Saul, I forgive you. I'm sure you're sorry, but I'm going to, I'm going to hang back. And that's, that's some good wisdom there. To say, look, you've hurt me. Yes, you've confessed it. Yes, you've asked forgiveness, and I forgive you. But I'm, I'm going to protect myself a little bit more. You don't have to just jump back into it because they say, oh, I'm sorry, can't we get back to normal? No, actions have consequences. That's what David did. David wisely said, I forgive you, but I'm going to stay here for a while to see if you're really sorry. That's just a sub-point here. But here's what we're really going to focus on. When life takes an unexpected turn, when something bad happens and your life just seems to be in turmoil and it takes a turn for the worse, you have two choices we're going to look at this morning. The first choice you have is, number one, you can take matters into your own hands. This is what a lot of us do, and this is the worst thing you can do as a believer. But it always, we are always tempted to do this, and the temptation that Satan sends our way to justify us taking matters in our own hands usually takes four forms. These are Satan's shortcuts. Here's the first shortcut. Rationalized revenge. They hurt me. So I'm going to hurt them. David's men urged him. Hey, he's been attacking you. He's tried to kill you five times. He's hunting us like dogs. We've left our family. We've left our friends. We've left everything to be with you and to, to follow you because we believe that God's going to put you on the throne. And this guy's done nothing but make our lives miserable and try to kill us and try to hurt us. And you would be justified in hurting him. Your wife doesn't respect you, so you cheat on her, and you feel justified in doing it. Or your boss is a jerk, so you're going to do, you do sloppy work. Maybe you steal from the office, and you're not stealing big stuff. It's like, I'm not stealing, you know, money. I'm taking some, some printer paper home because I'm out. Taking some pens home because they got plenty of them. So you think it's illegal to, I think it's immoral, I think it's unethical. You know, if your boss says take all the pins you want, take all the pins you want. But if they're company pins, taking them because your boss is mean to you is rationalizing your revenge. The government misuses your money, so you're justified in cheating on your taxes or not reporting all of your income. Someone hurts your feelings, someone disrespects you. So you treat them badly every time you see them. Or you run your mouth about them. You badmouth them to everybody behind your back. And you feel justified in your sins because of the wrong that you have been dealt with. But David says, 
acting wickedly comes out of a wicked heart. Second shortcut the devil uses is pilfered pleasures. A lot of alliteration in this one, so get used to it. Pilfered pleasures. Life isn't turning out the way that you expected, so you escape in stolen pleasures. Think about Joseph. Joseph's life, Joseph's life by the time Potiphar's wife tempted him, was pretty bad. I mean, he grew up in his father's house. He was his father's favorite, and that caused a lot of problems. But here's a young man who his brothers, those who were supposed to protect him, who were supposed to be for him, who were supposed to cherish him, his brothers sell him into slavery, tell their dad he's dead, Forget about him. So he's taken as a slave down into Egypt. He's sold into slavery. And he's, he's working in this man's house. And, man, nothing's turned out the way he was supposed to. He had this dream where his, his brothers and his dad were going to bow down to him. He, God had told him, I'm going to use you to do a great work in your family and in the world. And here he is. His family's betrayed him. His brothers have hurt him. He's in slavery. And this woman comes and tries to seduce him. He could have said, well, you know what? My life is pretty miserable. God told me I'd be something great, but here I am. And he could have justified sinning, but he didn't. Maybe your escape is a bottom of a bottle or through drugs or pornography. Whatever pain you've endured is not permission to violate God's word. Third Shortcut Satan gives us is cowardly compromise. This is what Abraham did. God's not delivering when he thought he should, so he did it himself. When God isn't moving at our timetable, when God's not doing what we think he should do, when we think he should do it, we try to take matters in our own hands. God hasn't blessed you financially like you think he should, so you compromise to get what you want. And maybe you're compromised doesn't take the form of theft or anything. Maybe you're just, you're overworking to try to make more money. You're spending time at work and working overtime and running yourself ragged. But more than that, you're, you're neglecting your family just to get what you think you deserve. Or you cut back on your ties to do what you think you should be able to do. And all of that leads us to the last shortcut. We, we are cowardly compromising, but then it leads us to number the fourth shortcut, panicked Presumption. Because God's not what not doing what you think he should do, you try to manipulate the circumstances. Maybe he shows up in self-promotion, trying to brag about how, how you could do things better, you could do things differently. You're not waiting on God to lift you up so you, you do it yourself. You manipulate the situation. You leverage relationships to get where you think you should be. Someone won't do what you want them to do, so you, you coerce them or you guilt them into doing what you want them to do. In all these situations, you are trying to complete in the power of the flesh what God has promised to do in the spirit. These are all opposite of what David did. David wouldn't take matters in his own hands. No matter how sinful Saul was, was to him, David didn't give David the justification for being sinful himself. So David took the second path. Second thing we can do, we can take matters in our hands. We can trust God and wait on his timing. 
Now, the first one's the, the worst thing we can do. This is the hardest thing to do. David said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on God. He made a promise. He always keeps it. I'm going to trust him to work it out in his timetable, in his way, for his honor. So I'll wait on God. That one phrase could change everything you do in life. I will wait on God. If your career is not where you think it should be, wait on the Lord. Your finances aren't right, they're a mess, wait on the Lord. You're still in the pasture waiting for God to, to wonder if he's ever going to put you in the battle, wonder if he's ever going to put you on the throne. What do we do? We wait on the Lord. Your marriage isn't what it should be, wait on the Lord. Your kids aren't turning out the way you think they should, wait on the Lord. Now here, waiting on God is not just sitting down and doing nothing. I'm not saying, man, my marriage is a mess. I'm just going to sit back and wait on God to change that wicked woman. Didn't work for Adam. Ain't going to work for me. At waiting is active. David didn't just go back to the cave, kick back and say, well, guys, we'll just, we'll wait on God to show up and say, all right, David, it's your turn. We're just going to sit back and do nothing. No, David, David prayed. David fought battles. David did a lot of things while he waited on God. Dave, waiting is active. David runs, he prays, he asks God to change the situation. He confronts Saul and passionately pleads his, his case. He goes from a posture, uh, he does it from a posture of trust and with a refusal to compromise and sin. Waiting on God is active. It is walking with God trusting God and believing he's going to do what he said he would. See, the biggest enemy in your life is not Saul. It's your inability to wait. It's your inability to be patient. We are in a right now society. We want something, we can have it right now. You want a burrito, you can have it in 45 seconds in the microwave. You want to watch TV? Look, you, you're sitting there thinking, man, I sure wish I could watch TV. You could pop out your phone, put in your earbuds, and watch it, and I have no idea what you're doing. Speaking of that, where's Connor? Watching TV. Uh, you're gonna, I'm just kidding, teasing you, Connor. But we live in an instant culture. We do not like to deny ourselves anything, even for a little bit of time, for something better in the future. You know, in 1970, I think I told you this before, Stanford University, they did what they call the marshmallow test. They found 32 children, and they put them in a room, at, you know, all of them separately, and they put a marshmallow in front of them. And they told them, if you wait 15 minutes, you'll get another marshmallow. And then they left them alone. A lot of them just, you know, shoved the marshmallow in their face right away. And, they, and then a lot of them, wait, some of them waited. And the, the, the way that they waited, I've seen the video of it, they're, they're covering their eyes so they don't look at the marshmallow. They're, they're, ah, you know, they're just trying to avoid the marshmallow. But they waited the 15 minutes and they got the second marshmallow. That's a, a cool story, but here's what, what the study really did. They, the study followed these kids for decades. They found out that the ones that waited for the second marshmallow 
their lives turned out better. They had higher SAT scores. They had better colleges. Their health was better. Their marriages were stronger. They did better than those who just grabbed a marshmallow and shoved it in their face. And this study has been repeated hundreds of times in different ways. There was a test in New Zealand that followed 1,000 children for 30 years. And they found the one factor that mattered if their life turned out what we consider successful and joyful and happy, or if it turned out miserable. It wasn't their IQ. It wasn't their, their, their social class. The one thing that determined how good or how bad their future turned out was impulse control. Those that could wait could control their impulses, always turned out better. Now, if you're like me, you're worried about your kids right now because you think they ain't got no impulse control. They don't, do, they don't wait on nothing. But I want you to focus on yourself. Some of you are marshmallow grabbers. You get a little treat, and you, if you wait, you'll get, who cares? Shove it in your mouth. Say, how do you know? Because I'm a marshmallow grabber a lot of times. If I can get something good now, you know, if I can get something good now, it's good now. Well, yeah, you may get something else better. Yeah, but I got good right now. Well, let me do it. The best way that we can, 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 the best lesson we can learn as believers and as just people is to learn to wait. So, how do we learn to wait? Turn over to Psalm 57. In Psalm 57... David shows us how he was able to wait for God to do what God had promised to do. Now I'm going to start, by, by, but instead of reading verse 1, I'm going to read the, the title to this psalm. To the chief musician, that guy, Al, uh, Mishtam, that's a, a song of David. Now, if you're, you're reading your Bible and it's got the title there, a psalm of David, when what? When he fled from Saul in the cave. This is written during 1 Samuel chapter 24. So let's start reading verse number 1. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge through these calamities be overpassed. I will cry unto the God most high, unto God that performeth all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. We see three things that David focused on to help him wait on God. The first one was he focused on God's sovereign purpose. Look at verse 2 again. I will cry unto God the Most High, unto God that performeth all things for me. David realized, God, I'm in a cave right now. I'm running from my life. I've had to leave my family. My, my father-in-law gave my wife to another dude. He's chasing me down like a dog. He's trying to kill me. And now he's over there stinking up the joint. But God, even in this cave, you've got a purpose. Even in this cave, you've got something that you're going to do. He realized Saul was not the one who was in control. 
God was in control. So he didn't have to respond to Saul. He just had to honor God. Whatever you are going through, whatever you face, whether it's good or bad or ugly or whatever it is, whatever you're facing, God is in complete control of it. He is sovereign. He is in control of everything. Nothing ever takes God by surprise. God's not in heaven when something bad happens to you. Gabriel runs up and gives him a memo and he goes, oh, I forgot about that. Everything that you face, even the caves, are in God's control. God has a purpose for it in your life. He focused on God's sovereign purpose. Second thing he focused on was he focused on God's steadfast love. Look at verse 3. He shall send from heaven and save me from the reproach of him that would swallow me up. Selah, God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. Not only does God have a purpose for whatever you're facing, but whatever you're going through is saturated with God's love. Even when Saul is treating you unjustly, a loving, sovereign God has a purpose for it. Look at verse number four. My soul is among the lions. I lie even among them that are set on fire, even the sons of men, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Look, that sounds bad. David is being chased by a rabid, psychopathic king that used to be his friend, but he's still trusted in God's love. God watches over your life with a sovereign purpose, and a steadfast love. Whatever you're going through is filtered through the hands of a loving heavenly father that has everything in control. The third thing David focused on was he had steadfast confidence. Look at verse number seven. My heart is fixed, O God. My heart is fixed and I will sing and give thee praise. David's heart was fixed, or in the Hebrew, it was locked on God. We only get to number chapter to verse 7, where David's love is locked on God, and his eyes are locked on God because of verse 3, where he recognized God's love and mercy for him. God's love and mercy and grace on David's life, his love God's love fixed on David allowed David to fix his love on God. See, the secret to steadfast obedience, even in temptation, is steadfast confidence in God's love for you. But the opposite's always also true. When you're not confident of God's love, when you're not confident of God's sovereignty in your life, of his goodness, then you get anxious and you want to take matters in your own hands. You want to do things your way because you're not sure God loves you enough to do it the right way. Miroslav Volf is a, a Croatian. He's a Christian Croatian. He lived through one of the most terrific uh, chapters of ethnic cleansing in the history of Serbia. And he said, you know, people often say, that if you believe in a God of judgment, that you will become violent yourself. It is actually exactly the opposite. It's when you don't believe in a God of justice that you become violent and judgmental. 
Who's going to pay these people back for what they did? When you've watched someone murder your parents and siblings, how can you not be filled with the rage that will eat you alive? I wrestled with hating the people who had been so cruel to my people. As I contemplated the gospel, I realized that, by the, that because the people who did these things would answer to God, I didn't have to make them answer to me. And that gave me the resources to not hate them. Since I believe in a God of justice, since I believe that God loves me, I don't have to take matters in my own hands. I can wait on him and trust him to do what he wants to do in his time. But if I don't believe in a God of justice, then I'm going to feel driven to pursue justice and revenge to the point of rage. That brings us to the most important dimension in this story. David's situation here, as always, is a picture of Jesus. Like David, Jesus was the rightful, anointed king. Like David, he didn't receive his kingdom immediately. He had to wait while he was disrespected and snubbed and persecuted and falsely accused. Like David... Jesus never took matters in his own hands. He waited on God. He trusted that the Father would make things right in his own time. Like David, Jesus was tempted by Satan to take a shortcut. And like David in this instance, Jesus refused. Like David, Jesus didn't take vengeance on his enemies when he had the opportunity. See, in this story, we're not David, we're Saul. We are rebels against Jesus. We have usurped his throne. We're, we're the ones trying to kill. We were the ones in the mob on that Jay in Jerusalem that were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. But that's where Jesus is a David's story diverged. See, Jesus did more than just spare us like David spared Saul. He died in our place so that we could be forgiven and restored to the palace. See, David just let Saul go, but Jesus laid down his life for us. He absorbed the wrath of God for us. He was buried in a grave we should have been buried in, and he rose again three days later to redeem us to God the Father. He came to you when you were a rebel and declared his love and acceptance of you. And that gives us power to trust him in everything. So you don't develop steadfast faith and then God accepts you. You develop steadfast faith because God has accepted you. Assurance of his acceptance comes first. Understanding God's love and God's acceptance of you leads you to obeying him. So this whole story is about how God came after you And how God never stopped loving you. It's about how he accepted you in mercy when it could have killed you for treason. Assurance of his acceptance enables us to obey his commands. See, you don't have to be a person of strong, flawless faith. Then Jesus accepts you. He accepts you where you are. And when you recognize his love and his sovereignty and his acceptance on your life, 
it leads you to walk with him and obey him and lead a life of faith. So here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Do we trust God to take care of every situation, no matter how bleak it may be or how much we disagree with what he's doing? Or do we try to take the shortcuts that Satan sends our way? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we do thank you so much for the day you've given us. Thank you for the opportunity, the privilege we have to come together, to study your word, to study the life of David. Thank you for listening to this message from New Grace Baptist Church. For more information about New Grace, check out our website at www.reachingroanoke.com.